This is Hemant with the Friendly Atheist Podcast. I am here with Andrew Seidel at the Freedom from Religion Foundation Convention in Madison. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm doing quite well, my friend. Excellent. I wanted to talk to you about your book, The Founding Myth. And what's your uh, brief explanation of the book? What is The Founding Myth? Uh, the Founding Myth is the idea that we are a Christian nation. But I wanted to go deeper in my book than that. I wanted to really rip into the idea that we are founded on Judeo-Christian principles. And that is an argument that it, re- the religious right constantly makes. Constantly. Politicians make it all the time. And it's it's this it's so pernicious because they use it as justification to allow Christianity to get away with things that other religions or atheism would never be allowed to get away with. Exactly. I mean all manner of things from things that are little like our national motto in God we trust to much more pernicious and even really straight-up evil things. I mean, the child separation policy at the border, this administration justified with Romans 13, uh, which is... Like Jeff Sessions cited that Jeff Sessions literally cited it in a speech. We know they learned about how to justify it in the White House Bible study. I mean, we... I got the documents from the State Department and from this Capital Ministries group. We know they were using the Bible to justify this. And that is Christian nationalism. That's what I'm really trying to to fight and overturn. Is there a difference between Christian nationalism and theocracy straight up? I mean, not, well, not in the United States. (laughs) 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 I mean, if you were in Saudi Arabia, yeah. I mean, it is, Christian nationalism really is this idea that we are a Christian nation, that we're founded on Judeo-Christian principles. And, And the more important part of it for them is that we've strayed from the foundations and that we need to get back to those religious roots. And that language of return is what they use to justify all those policies. Like, this is the way we were. We're just going back. In their ideal situation, what would the country look like? What would change big time if if we were living in their little fantasy land here? I mean, I mean Handmaid's Tale. Yeah. I mean, I mean Gilead. I mean, this is, it would be a government that is dedicated to promoting Christianity. So, so right now, the separation of state and church really means at its core, if you strip away the legalities, that you cannot use a public office that you occupy to promote your personal religion. All the violations that we see could really be stripped down to some individual abusing a public power to promote their personal God. And and if we can stop that, all manner of evil really is solved. And it it should be pointed out, too, that there really is no such thing as the freedom of religion without a government that's free from religion. As long as we allow politicians to abuse their offices in that way, there's no, no, never going to be genuine religious freedom in the United States of America. This argument that we are returning to what we used to be, that's what goodness used to be. Like, th- that's the argument they use when we see mass shootings occur, yeah. too. They're like, well, the reason that happened is because we strayed. Exactly. And if we just go back, everything bad will stop. Yeah. It's because we took the Bible out of schools. It's because we took prayer out of the schools. So as an attorney for FFRF, you've written a lot of warning letters and filed lawsuits that concern this issue. I'm really curious because as a person who looks at it from a distance as a non-lawyer, I, I feel like, okay, I've, I've seen some of the basic arguments about why we're not really a Christian nation and and why the religious right is wrong on some of this, uh, on a lot of this stuff. What did you learn that you didn't know when you were writing this book? 
Because you know a lot about the founding <laughs> myth. You know about the traditional arguments they always use. What surprised you, though, as you're going through all this research? So, so as I was writing the book, one thing became more and more clear to me, and it kind of became the central thesis of the book. And it's that the principles of Christianity, especially those that are central to Christian nationalism, they are actually fundamentally opposed to the principles on which our nation was built. There is, there is such disagreement and conflict between the two systems that, as I say in the book, Christianity is un-American. And, and that was kind of a surprise to me. It, but it really is, if you look at the, those most basic ideas in Christianity, let's look at the idea of hell, uh, vicarious redemption through human sacrifice, the crime and punishment that you see in the Bible, uh, the idea of biblical justice is pretty horrific. Look at the governments in the Bible. There's not a whiff of representative government anywhere in the Bible. Everything that you see in the Bible is really fundamentally opposed to the principles on which our nation was founded, at least in terms if you're looking for any type of positive influence. <laughs> <laughs> and so if they're saying, let's look to the Bible as a guidebook for how to run the country, no. we wouldn't be living in this country. It, no, I mean, ex that's exactly right. That's a perfect way to put it. So, uh, so this is a question that we are becoming a less formally religious nation. More mm -hmm. people are leaving organized religion. What does that do to that Christian myth? Because it feels like it's getting stronger, if anything else, yeah. or at least they keep perpetuating it, and yet we are becoming a less religious nation. I, I think those two are actually intimately tied together. What, what you're seeing, they are raging against the dying of their privilege. They can read the studies as well as we can. Every Sunday morning, they're looking out, and instead of seeing young, smiling faces, they're seeing you know the empty pews. They know what's coming, and they're doing their damnedest to codify their privilege into the law now while, while they, have they have the, the chance. Power. Yeah. Yeah. And so they're actually becoming more strident even though oh, yeah. they have well they don't have less power but they're going to have less power yes. hopefully. Yes. No, I mean and it, and it's coming. And you know as a constitutional attorney doing this, I mean I would love to be able to say like we're going to win this in the courts, but from day 1 entering this movement, I knew that was never going to be the case. We we're, we're going to win this fight with demographics, not in the courts. We love to think of the Supreme Court as this great defender of civil rights, as this bastion of civil rights and human rights, and it's not. And it really never has been, with the possible exception of the Warren Court, from like Brown versus Board to Miranda and Roe versus Wade, like there's like maybe 25 years where it was really leading on these issues. With that possible exception, the Supreme Court has always been very conservative and very behind on these issues. My One of my law professors said, the Supreme Court is like the last person in on an all-team tackle, right? <laughs> the ball carrier is knocked down, everybody jumps on, and then the Supreme Court comes running in like five minutes later, jumps on top of the pile, and is like, hey, look what I did. I'm so awesome. <laughs> so when it comes to something like marriage equality, like the country had already moved there. They're just the ones who are like, look, we'll put the stamp of approval on it, it or something. A perfect example. They could have done the right thing yeah. many times before that. They waited till the country shifted its position, and then they ratified it instead of leading the way on it. Do, you, do we want a court now that would ratify stuff? Because this is a very conservative court right now. Yeah. It may get more conservative. Oh, I mean, I, it's, it's, it's been pretty bad. I, like, there's a legit chance that we lose marriage equality. The Obergefell decision, uh, when it came down, it was the only, as far as I know, it's the only decision that John Roberts actually read 
his descent from the bench. Mm-hmm. And we're all looking to John Roberts to be this swing vote right, right. now. I mean, like, there's a good chance. I remember when there were protests against John Roberts joining the court, yeah. and it's like, you're the saving of grace no. now. No, I mean, it, it's terrible when it comes to so many important right. issues. Uh, so it's, it is it is alarming. And and this goes it goes back to that other point that we were just talking about. You know, They are doing a massive amount of damage. The question is not whether we're going to be able to recover. I think we are. It's just going to, how long is it going to take us? Would you rather see the court packed with the future president, or would you rather see, I don't, I, like the Buttigieg plan yeah. of like, let's have some conservatives, some liberals, some quote unquote independents? Yeah, I don't, I don't like, I don't like a, any type of litmus test right now, but I think the, there does need to be a lot more fighting on the liberal side of this. Uh, Why haven't liberals cared about the Supreme Court as a political issue as much as conservatives? They're so good at, at wielding, like, they take the court so seriously, and I'm jealous of how good they are at using that so am I. as a tool. And, and they get it. They get the power that the courts have. It's the one thing Trump has promised and delivered on for them because he doesn't care, so he just <laughs> lets they're, other people handle it. Why are they so good at that? Why are we so bad at it? I think because they're, they're not constrained by morals or principles as much as our side is. I mean, they are in it to win, regardless, and that is not necessarily the same for our side. There are a lot of solutions, though, uh, to this possible problem, but it all depends on... So I, one thing that I would like to avoid is any type of constitutional amendment dealing with the Supreme Court. Um, so getting to the number of justices doesn't require that. That's not violating the Constitution or changing it or anything It's not like that. set in the Constitution, so it can just be... Congress can just change it. So that the court packing is very attractive for that reason. Mm-hmm. And... I mean, Trump has put in, now I think we're at 180 thereabouts, like federal judges now. And I mean, like it's like a third of the judiciary almost. But our judiciary is still like way overworked. Right. So, so we could, and the justification could be there's just a lot to do, exactly. so we need more judges. Exactly. And that could, that could be done pretty easily. But Is that know, just a simple majority sort of thing? Well, I mean, depending on filibuster and right. existence and things like that. But yeah, I mean, the, theoretically, if you got a Congress that was sympathetic to this idea, it could be done pretty pretty darn quick. Mm-hmm. And then, I mean, then you're talking about having to confirm all these people for these new positions, but still. Right. And I'm just wondering, like, uh, suppose, uh, this is, again, me in fantasy world, suppose she was on the other foot, there's a progressive mm-hmm. president, a Democratic Congress in both houses. I can only imagine the backlog of progressive judges, progressive-minded judges, who have just been kind of waiting in the pipelines, waiting for the opportunity. Because it seems like, you know, when it comes to conservative judges who have been appointed to these federal uh, lifelong seats, they're not sending their best. Oh, no. And so I have to imagine, like, there's a whole slew of amazingly credentialed judges who have just had the unfortunate pick of being really smart at a time when no one's here to be able to do anything for them. I mean, let's be very clear. (laughs) The best legal minds far and away the best legal minds are all liberal. <laughs> it's like, I know that's, uh, but it's true. It's absolutely <laughs> true. I mean, you're talking about like 90% of law professors are going to be on our side of most of these issues. And it would, it would not be too hard to come up with 450 names that you, will, that you would be confident would be good judges, better than the judges that the Federalist Society and Trump are nominating. Now. There was, I forgot which group it was, there was a group
group that said, we are presenting this list of like two dozen judges that we vouch for that would be amazing for the Supreme Court because that is what I think the Federalist Society did for Trump. And Trump's like, yeah, when I have to appoint somebody or nominate somebody for that seat, I'm taking somebody from that list. And then they like expanded the list and we got Gorsuch and we got um, Kavanaugh. A liberal group has now done that. Yep. They put together a list of like two dozen names. Do you think that's a wise move in the sense like, yeah, I want a president to say, yep, I'm going to pick from that list? Or is that almost playing a game we don't want to be playing? I don't know. I mean, I, it goes back to kind of why are they so good at this and they always win. Like, that's, that makes me uncomfortable. I don't necessarily want a presidential candidate to say, like, yes, I will absolutely promise. I'll to outsource it to yeah, this other group. Exactly. I mean, that's what Trump's doing, and I do have a problem with that. Um, then on the other hand, like, are we shooting ourselves in the foot by, by not doing something like this. Um, and there, there's, I mean, there's so much you can, we can talk about in this whole area too. I mean, we've, Trump is setting up, um, you know, talking about inexperienced judges, a former Notre Dame law professor. He got her, Amy Coney Barrett, got her on the seventh circuit. Um, she's only been there for a year and a half now, and they are poised to put her in the next seat on the Supreme Court. They're hoping it's Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Right. Seat, and I want them all to die because they hope that. <laughs> They're also, there's a lot of talk, and this is like... And plus, she would then be a decisive vote against abortion. Oh, yeah. And if you get to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg with someone like that, you get to... It's not five white guys, or... I'm sorry, there's not five conservative justices no. um, doing this, five guys. You would at least have one woman making that decisive which, vote. Which I think is a big part of the appeal for them. Um, you know, and, and there's also talk of, like, they're trying to push Clarence Thomas to retire. Okay, so I want to ask you about that. No. Ruth Bader Ginsburg has had health scares. That's why people talk about these mm -hmm. things with Barrett. But Clarence Thomas is, I think, older maybe mm -hmm. than her, than Ruth Bader Ginsburg. If he retired now, you have all the pieces you need as a Republican to get your replacement in, mm -hmm. and yet he hasn't retired, no. and he hasn't said, he hasn't hinted at it. No. Not even, as far as I can tell, to his closest people. What, what are you thinking if you're Clarence Thomas here? I mean... It, your your ego is very tied up in your role as a Supreme Court justice if you're Clarence Thomas. I mean, this has been his life for, I don't remember now, I, it's close to 35 years, or maybe maybe just past 35 years now. Um, he, I think this is all he knows at this point, and I don't, I don't think he's going to be willing to just turn around and give up that power it's i mean even though he's what late is he in his 80s i think now? he's i think he's 78 78 I, I, don't quote me on that yeah and don't but, email me about it <laughs> but yeah i mean he's to the point where it's like look if if there is a democratic president and he gets replaced at some point or another it's not going to be an ideological clone of his yeah. it's going to be someone else i mean if you're the smart thing to do if you're a republican is get clarence thomas to retire now so you can appoint some 35-year-old who will just rubber stamp anything, you know, Kavanaugh and Gorsuch and them want. And that's what they, that's what they want to do. I'm sure they're tempting him with very lucrative positions outside the mm -hmm. judiciary. I mean, he, he could make huge amounts of money not being 
retiring as a Supreme Court justice and continuing to work in some way, shape, or form. Uh, so, I mean, that's, that's to me is a nightmare scenario, something like that happening. That would be very, very bad. And also not hearing whispers of it is not necessarily indicative of anything. The Supreme Court is pretty damn good about yeah. protecting their own and keeping quiet on these. So issues. right now, I mean, we're recording this in October. Um, there's a year left before the presidential race. At what point, I mean, could he theoretically say in June when the Supreme Court finishes this session? That would be session? when I would expect it. That would be when I would expect it. But if he does, that gives him, what, two, three months to ram through somebody really quick? Yep. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's possible. Remember, remember how tr- quick they tried to move with Kavanaugh? The only reason it got slowed down was, was the sexual yeah, assault. Because that came out. And if it hadn't, it would have been much faster than it was. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it really is alarming. And there, there are a lot of these judges that are being nominated, we're talking exclusively about the Supreme Court, but the impact is going to be bigger with the lower court judges. And a lot of them are openly Christian nationalists. They're yeah, they've said so. Their writing says so. so. Yeah, they're, they're deliberately warping and torturing our history to make it seem like we are a Christian nation, like we are based on Christian principles, and then they can justify all manner of public policy in the case of administration or judges all manner of challenges against groups like FFRF or against secular Americans. It, it's alarming. One of the things, you, so you're writing about Christian nationalism and the origins of our nation and whether we're truly Christian. One of the things I've seen on the religious right, um, people like David Barton, who distorts our history, where are, uh, it's not just him mm-hmm. who says, let me tell you about our founding fathers and how Christian they were and their Christianity is just like my Christianity. Um, it's not That's just so him, wild. though, but where are they pulling this from? Because you're looking at the documents, you're, lo- you're studying this stuff, and you could see it seems pretty plain and clear yeah. that they're not looking to make some religious right haven or anything, and yet the religious right's like, nope, that's totally what they said. What are they looking at to, to get that? It, they're reverse engineering. They're, start, they're starting from a position and then doing what it takes to read those documents in a way that lets them not even make a colorable argument. I don't think you can say, like, some of the stuff is so bad. Like, the idea that separation of powers comes from, I think it's from Isaiah 33, uh, where they, it's, it's, the line is something along the lines is, God is king, God is judge, God is lawmaker. And so they're like, look, that's the, that's the three branches of government right there. <laughs> it's like, no, that's one, that's a unitary power. That's God is everything. That's not three branches of government. Sounds like a high schooler trying to analyze a poem. Yeah, like, and, and we know we know that the founders got that idea from Montesquieu because they said that, like, a <laughs> lot. <laughs> Why, uh, is there a reason that stuff is so susceptible to being distorted by the right? Is it just yes. like, it's so easy, it seems, for them to just pick and choose whatever, cherry pick out of context passages, say, yep, see, this is what we've been saying. Now pass whatever the, our Republican agenda is. Yeah, no, I think it's a great question. And it, it, you're, it goes to identity. And that, that's really what this fight is about. Their goal is to make it so that to be an American is to be a Christian. And to be a Christian is to be an American. So they're willing to buy into that no matter what because it really justifies their view of themselves as I am more American because I am a Christian. I am a true American because I am a Christian. And that's one of the things that I really wanted to do in this book was I really wanted to push back and fight against. And I've been, it's been so rewarding here at the FFRF convention because I've had a number of people come up to me and say, like, I'm 80 years old. And like, this is the first time where I've ever 
felt proud to be an American reading your book. And I really actively tried to push that because this, this country, we invented the separation of state and church. That is an American original. No other country had tried that before. It, I mean, they, philosophers had thought about it, but it was first implemented in the American experiment. And I think that is something that we can be proud of. And I know a lot of people, when they think of patriotism and things like that, they immediately are picturing their MAGA hat wearing uncle or something like that. Right. But, but that's exactly what I'm trying to push back against. That's why I say that Christian nationalism is un-American. Don't cede the idea of what it is to be an American to them. Let's reclaim it. It's, I realize I'm in, a, I'm in a bubble here, but when I hear people like you and FFRF and other church-state separation groups fight against that idea of Christian nationalism, it seems like, why are atheists so often the ones who seem to be fighting against it? And there are some, uh, quote-unquote, secular groups that are not atheist-specific mm-hmm. that fight back against that in the courtroom and just philosophically. I don't hear it as much from non-Christian groups or progressive Christian groups as much. And am I just missing it? Have you seen it in your line of work where, no, they're fighting the same battles because they realize it's the Christian nationalism idea hurts them too, think, and yet we're the ones who seem to be fighting it. I think we, we fight it the hardest, for sure. There are, we do have allies in this fight, and I think other, other groups uh, and even other movements are waking up to how dangerous this is. I mean, the, the attempt to weaponize religious liberty right now, so to turn it into a license to violate somebody else's rights, like the LGBTQ movement and community and the legal arm of that community is really waking up to, this is actually a really pernicious and dangerous idea. And that it is undergirded by all these myths that are simply not true. So I think there, I think there is, uh, there, people are waking up to the dangers of it outside of our movement. Um, what sort of cases are you looking at these days for FFRF more than others? And how has that shifted over the past several years? Like, do you get more complaints in public schools about no. certain issues? Is it nativity scenes on government property? What's the deal? Yeah, I mean, the Supreme Court has been really unfriendly lately. Um, so, we're, I mean, we're looking for stronger cases. We're looking to take more cases in state courts. We've been pretty successful so far on that. We're two for two in our last two state court cases. Uh, the more egregious the facts are, the better it is right now uh, because because the courts are so unfriendly. Public schools are still pretty well defended. We're on pretty safe ground there. But even now, the Supreme Court is looking at this case called Espinoza versus Montana Department of Revenue where there's a chance that they're going to say that private Christian schools have a constitutional right to access state treasury funds, which is an insane departure from what the founding fathers intended when they meant the separation of state and church and when they were talking about religious liberty. Uh, absolutely nowhere near what they, one of the, actually one of the evils that they were trying to prevent against. They didn't want a Christian to have to support a Jewish school or a Muslim to have to support a Catholic school or a non-believer to have to support any religious school. Let the religious support their own was, was their, essentially their motto. Uh, and there's a chance that the Supreme Court just throws that under the bus this term. With the couple of the big losses we've seen with the the playground case in Trinity Lutheran, Trinity Lutheran and with the Bladensburg cross case, mm-hmm. what's okay? So uh, the side of state church separation lost those cases. 
What's been the biggest effect of those Supreme Court losses? And I know it's too early maybe for the Bladensburg yeah. one, but Trinity Lutheran we've seen play out a little bit now. Trinity Lutheran we were able to do a pretty good job of stopping the bleeding on. And can you briefly explain what the sure. Supreme Court said in that one? So in that case, um, there was a church that operated a school that operated a playground, and they wanted to resurface their playground with rubberized tire, recycled tires, so it would be safe for kids' knees. And the state had a program that granted money for schools to do that. And the state has a provision in the Constitution that says we can't financially support religious schools. So when Trinity Lutheran came and said, hey, we want some of this money for our playground, the state said, no, sorry, you're a religious school, we can't support you. And they sued, claiming religious discrimination. And the re in my opinion, the reason the case was successful was solely because it was they were able to say, this is about kids and their skin to knees. Like, it's a, it's a very, the other side Who chose Who wants to well. oppose this? Exactly. The other side chose really well. It's, it's, it's kids, and it's kids being safe on a playground. Everybody can support that, right? Right. That's uh, not Christianity. Exactly. So it was, a, and, but because of that, because they chose so well, and because that was the idea that everybody had in the case, it actually helped us really limit the damage that that case could have caused. And that's why you're seeing this Montana uh, case that is coming up, this, essentially this neo-voucher case. Uh, they're working to try to build on Trinity Lutheran because they haven't been able to expand it in the way they wanted. What are the cases you're most, besides the Espinosa one, uh, are there other cases you're freaking out about in terms of state <laughs> church issues specifically? Yeah, I mean, state it's in terms of state church issues specifically, Espinoza is is the biggie right now, um, and it's sort of this shadow that um, is it, it really was under the radar. And it was under the radar because the case was so strange the way it happened, and this happened in Trinity Lutheran too. So in Trinity Lutheran, by the time the case reached the Supreme Court, the state had actually already said, "Hey, you know what?" we're changing our mind, you guys can have access to these funds. So if that had happened in one of FFRF's cases, the court would have kicked it out immediately. Said it's already settled, we're good now. Exactly. And when there's no controversy, when there's no conflict, when there's no adversarial parties, it should stop. There should not be any further litigation. But the Supreme Court took it anyway, which was a really bad sign. And here... In the Montana case, you have something really similar happening. Didn't the Montana Supreme Court was unanimous or something? The Montana Supreme Court was unanimous. And what the Montana Supreme Court did was they said, your entire neo-voucher program is unconstitutional. Struck the whole thing down. So it's not like other private non-Christian schools are getting money. There's no program at all right now. So in the, the equivalent for the Trinity Lutheran case would have said, nobody's getting a rubberized playground. The whole thing was unconstitutional. Um, and that is perfectly within the Montana Supreme Court's power. But it had not, now what they are doing, what these parents are doing, these Christian parents, is saying that remedy that the Supreme Court of Montana did, that was unconstitutional. To end the voucher program yeah, altogether. That was discrimination against religion, which is <laughs> mind-boggling. And this, so the Supreme Court never should have taken this case just on basic procedural grounds. Like, that, if that is their new argument, that should have bounced all the way back down and been re-argued all the way back up, or at the very least, argued before the Montana Supreme Court again, and they should have addressed the issue squarely, and then the U.S. Supreme Court could take it on. So what we're hoping for, I won't say praying, because <laughs> no, thank you, 
is the, the court can do something called digging a case, dismissing as improvidently granted, dig, D-I-G. And that means they accept a case, and then later on they're like, hey, you know what, this is actually a really bad idea. We're going to get rid of it. <laughs> so that's what we're asking for. That's what we're hoping. Everybody on our side is going to be writing briefs on this. I'm actually penning the brief for a bunch of the secular organizations. Uh, we're going to get it in in, in mid-November. And but they are gonna uh, they are gonna hear the case though, or they could say before the hear because the hearing's already been scheduled. I think. Yeah. Right? So the the Montana the parents have already briefed it. Yeah. Um, and the uh, the briefing for our side is due uh, at the beginning of November, and then the amicus briefs are middle of November, and then oral argument. But at any time before they oh, decide okay. the case and before they issue their decision, they can dismiss it as improvidently granted. Um. Let me get back to your book for a second. When you wrote that, obviously your intended audience, I would imagine, are the sort of people who have this false idea that being a patriot means being a Christian. Mm -hmm. Have you heard from them so far? Anyone who is in that camp and who says, I believe David Barton. Now <laughs> I realize he's full of it. I have had a lot of people who were really stunned and they're like, I had no idea that this was, was true. And then they so they immediately flip to the citations and they like assume <laughs> I'm going to be wrong and I mean I, I hired two attorneys to fact check me and I paid them a bounty for every single error they could find in the citations uh -huh. so I feel pretty good about them I'm sure there's still a few mistakes in the book but nothing nothing huge not on principle no no certainly not there and but really who I was I was writing to two groups I was writing to secular Americans who believe like we do and my goal there was to give them better arguments against these constant barrage of bad arguments that they hear. Because you'll often hear, like, our side loves to cite the Treaty of Tripoli. It's like one of their favorite things ever. It has no impact at all. Our side loves to talk about how the Founding Fathers were really not religious. That discussion in and of itself, wading into that discussion, is a tactical error. Like, we don't need to be talking about their personal religious beliefs, because even if they were all evangelical Jesus rose from the dead Christians, that doesn't show that they built a nation on those principles. You still have to draw a line from the principles on which we were founded to that religion, and you can't do it. You can't name a single Christian principle that positively influenced the founding of the United States of America. So that's, I'm trying to really give everybody much better arguments to engage on this issue. And the second group of people I was writing to are that middle chunk of America who's just kind of like not really in the know about Christian nationalism or that this is a threat, and literally, in my opinion, an existential threat to our republic. Uh, their goal is to make this a government of the Christians, for the Christians, and by the Christians. And I am not having any of that. <laughs> um, one last question for you before you go. Uh, we've talked a lot on the podcast, and, and I know FFRF has talked about it, Project Blitz oh, yeah. from the Christian right, and this is their kind of playbook for how legislators... Literally their playbook. Literally their playbook for uh, bills they want to see passed and mm -hmm. stuff. What do you think, again, fantasy world, let's say <laughs> Democrats regain control of everything, what happens to that sort of endeavor? What happens to that playbook? What do they do if they lose? Because we've seen what happens when they think they can pass things. What happens now uh, if they realize, okay, legislatively, we're not going to have much success at a national level? I mean, I think, I think what they will end up doing is go back to the courts. I mean, that's, that's almost certainly what they're going to be doing. And, I mean, they're so good at disinformation and misinformation campaigns. They're, they're, they will revisit the drawing board and try to come up with new myths and new arguments to do this. But I will say on that point, like, I, it took me about eight or nine years to write this book total from in, you know, inception to the end. And 
I have not seen a new argument from their side. I just debated this guy named. It's Mark almost David like creationists. It's, it's exactly <laughs> like that. Mark Mark David Hall is this this scholar on their side uh, who's this intellectual zamboni. He's got these scholar scholarly chops, but really he just goes around putting this historical gloss on the Christian nationalist lies and myths, and he's got nothing new. I mean, he's got a whole book coming out on it, and the William Lane Craig of Christian yeah, and, nationalism. And exactly, and none none of it is new. I was so struck when I, and and we just debated, and the debates up on C-SPAN. And, you know, I, my point during the whole thing was like, look, man, just name a Judeo-Christian principle that positively influenced the founding of the United States of America, and you win. And he came up with um, imago Dei, meaning humans are made in the image of God, which, what even is that? <laughs> Move on. Uh, that humans are sinful. I mean, what? Mm-hmm. How, point to how did that influence the founding of our nation? What are you talking? And it's just President Jesus understood. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, American Jesus yeah. gets it. I mean, he so he he has really nothing when you could, the the best that he could come up with was claiming these universal human principles for his particular religion, which is just arrogance that I'm not going to stand for. All right, <laughs> thank you so much, Andrew uh, Seidel from Freedom from Religion Foundation. The book is The Founding Myth. Thank you so much. Thank you, Hammond.